Yes, hello, Tyler O'Reilly here. Before we start, just wanted to remind everyone of Bazaar Plus, our membership program where you can get extra episodes every week. Just simply go to the link in the show notes. It's Sports Bazaar. I'm going to kick back and enjoy this. Some of these stories, you would say, that cannot be true. The hunt for the weirdest. It's a real rollercoaster ride, this one, isn't it? <laughs> it makes Game of Thrones look like a sitcom. <laughs> Strangers. There you go. He's on another level. What are you doing? <laughs> a lot of our stories that start with someone <laughs> fleeing moneylenders. Most unbelievable. This is a car crash. Stories to ever occur. I'll stop this right now. <laughs> it's just carnage. That is the densest bit of mayhem. So many <laughs> subplots in this story. In the world of sport. I think we're learning that embarrassment is not something. Sports bizarre. A naked fan ran onto the field and slid into second base. <laughs> no, I don't drink water. I cannot stand drinking water. I am the president of everybody. I am the president of the whole FIFA. <laughs> Opened his mouth and a sparrow flew out. It's time for the leaders of the hunt. It's really simple. Get there early, get the good back. It's Titus <laughs> O'Reilly and Mick Malloy. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Sports Bazaar with me, Mick Malloy. And as always, doing the heavy lifting, Titus O'Reilly. How are you, Titus? I'm very well. Oh, well, you seem quite happy with yourself. Of, uh, <laughs> I'm always you, happy. You've been with digging life. around. What have you found for I, us this week? I have. Well, this is one I love, this one. So, okay. There is a lot in here that you're going to like. <laughs> Right. I like it when you say that. That, and that means it's usually a colourful character. It's two colourful characters. Yes. And we're talking, we're talking Le Mans. We're talking the 24-hour race okay. in Le Mans, but we're talking sure. – there's a phrase in motor racing of the gentleman driver, and this yes. was in the early days of motor racing where you had to have money. Yes. Because the cars were so expensive. There weren't teams. There weren't all the – We've examined huge, this already in Formula One. Formula we, One yeah. and, you know, with Hesketh Racing. So this is even before I that. love Hesketh Racing. You know, no, it's one you of know, I'd all. never known about them, but I fell in love with them. And as we established, set the atmosphere – for, for Formula One. For cocktails, drinks, that racing vibe, movie stars. We're talking about the James Hunt episode of people haven't listened, so yeah. Yeah, the, and he raced for Hesketh Racing. The reason you love Hesketh Racing is because if you set up a racing team, it would be Hesketh <laughs> Racing. Be the guy who set it up, Lord Hesketh, just had yes. all the ideas you would uh, have. He's a genius. <laughs> but also, too, I like him because it's easy to – poke fun or underestimate insanely wealthy people. Yeah. But I think credit has to go to insanely wealthy people who put it to a good cause. <laughs> you, you know. Yeah, and well, have fun with and it. Have fun and have fun with it yeah. and spread the wealth. They give yeah, other they cre- people great enjoyment. He created something, didn't which he? Which is clearly what he's done. He could have yeah. been out in the paddock shooting pheasant. No. <laughs> I'm going, I'm going to change the face of racing yeah. and make it a carnival. He was like, this will never make me money. This is just throwing money. This is my some- legacy. It's like going to the pub. You, you know you're not going to come out with a profit, but you're going to come out with a good time. Right? And that's Correct. what he was like with racing. He wasn't trying to like run a business. No, genius. Well um, done. This is when racing was very rough. So we're going to start with a guy called Duncan Hamilton. Doesn't sound very French. The two drivers Le are Mans. not French, but they come to dominate Le Mans. All right. So Duncan? Duncan Hamilton. He's born in Ireland on the 30th of April, 1920. Yep. There was a sense from early on that he liked speed and things that moved. Yes. He was in his pram and he was aged two. <laughs> and one yes. of he was from a very wealthy family, <laughs> and his nanny was watching him in the pram outside. Right, and this is like not the modern prams with a thousand brakes oh, and please. all that sort of stuff. 
and noticed the two-year-old Duncan was starting to like could realize he could reach over the pram and <laughs> touch the wheels, right? And yeah, like okay. someone in a wheelchair, he could move it forward or backwards by pushing uh, the wheel forward or he, backwards. He was born to do born this. Born to do this and he was really enjoying the movement. Yes. And the woman watching from the kitchen's like thinking, oh, isn't that cute? Until he started to go forward. <laughs> And forward and, and forward, forward until he reached a bunch of a flight of thirty-eight steps and went down and knocked himself unconscious. Welcome aboard. Now this, I thought we got to say at his own little pit crew. Yeah, for, yeah. for a pram. Yeah, that's right. The pram pulls in. The pram changed the wheels. <laughs> Instead Go. of a bit of water, they chuck some milk in. <laughs> they give him a bottle. <laughs> yeah. and then pull out. Don't spill the milk. We will learn with Duncan, and I'm just going to say this up front. He has so many crashes on track, off track, in planes, in prams. boats, in prams, that I'm not going to even try to mention them all because we would yeah. be here for five hours, right? In his autobiography, it is like, then I had this crash, then I had this crash. Like you go pages where it's like. Because of why? Because, because he, he drove was dangerous? Very, he drove very fast everywhere. Was he, but he was good. He was very good, but I think he pushed the envelope all the time. It never occurred to him that I think he was also him. drunk a lot, <laughs> which we'll <laughs> okay. get to. But, yeah, so he crashes all the time. So him crashing in his pram at, and knocking himself unconscious at two. First of many. Was the first of many, not a, you know, not an amazing thing. Now, in Ireland, this was when his father was a huge converted monastery. They had a huge garden. He doesn't say in his autobiography, and I've looked in this, I can't find what his father actually did. I think he was sort of linked to sort of English aristocracy yep. because when the so-called troubles were on in Ireland, yes. and this is, you know, 1920s, Duncan says a friend of his father was shot at their front door and often their house would be sprayed with bullets. Okay. Like quite regularly. So is the aristocracy with English well, connections it seems, and the locals? I'm reading between were, the lines. I could be wrong and it could have been English partisans and he was part of but it seems that yeah, that was more it. But Duncan wasn't political in any way, but this was sort of the like the, he's very vague on this and everything I've read I couldn't find it. But, right. but he does say that they used to have to sleep on mattresses under the windows to avoid sniper bullets and he would be as a kid tied to his bed because he couldn't. He'd get too excited and start like wanting to look for the snipers. Okay. So they'd go. Come on, Duncan. Just, you know, stick your head. So by 926, he's six years old, they moved to London, which is where I think they thought it's safe for not safer, being in Ireland. I think they weren't the only ones to do that. Someone shooting up your house is going to make you want to probably. From the local you. community. <laughs> it possibly works you for a, you by day. <laughs> it doesn't give a good sense of community. No. So he leaves and they go there and there he goes to prep school. He says he loved Ireland and he loved England. He had a big garden. His father was really nice. His dad was into sport. He was into car racing. They seem to be very wealthy. And he said it was helpful. He mentions having several nannies and all this, and yep. maids and all that sort of stuff. He gives an early indication he's very technically minded yep. so and mechanically minded. He takes apart the local vicar's bicycle. Just the bike, the vicar's inside <laughs> right. having tea, and he just totally strips completely it. strips the bike, puts it back together. When he's about, no, he doesn't put it back together. <laughs> oh, that's part of the deal, mate. The vicar comes out and starts yelling at him. His dad rock hears it and comes out and says, "Smooths it all. I'll fix it up." Well, and they fit, build the bike back together. But he says, "Oh, how else are boys meant to learn?" And Duncan says, "The vicar's looking at him like there are other ways to teach a kid a lesson." <laughs> but his dad's that sort of nice. Yeah. He then discovers cars. 
and he convinces his parents like to let them drive him drive. At what car age is this? As a young teen yeah. on the farm and all this stuff. He crashes them all to the point where they say you can't have one. <laughs> he then goes to Brighton College where he's meant to one day be washing one of the masters. You know, this is a very private or public school they call it over there posh school one of the masters says wash my car and all that and he gets in takes for a bit of a drive but instead of reversing he goes forward into a storeroom where the servants store their bicycles (laughs) goes through the wall they just all go no not good finally he gets an austin 7 these old beautiful cars i'll put some pictures on the discord for our members but they're just amazing cars he crashed that on his very first drive that he ever had (laughs) So he says to his parents, they won't buy him a car. So he says, what if I buy an old car and just do it up from scratch because I love the mechanical nature of it and they say, fine. So he rebuilds a car from scratch and first he has to rebuild the engine. And this is like 1920s. These are early cars. He builds it on the table in the kitchen, the engine, so it's not in the car. And then he decides, oh, I'll just turn the engine on. (laughs) So he turns the engine (laughs) off it leaps off the table, smashes, smashes through the bathroom wall. (laughs) which had just been renovated in marble and smashed the whole place up. So his father reads all this, packs him off to uni to study aeronautical engineering. All right, sure. So he's getting into that sort of stuff. Part of this, he also is near somewhere called Brooklands. Now, this is the first ever motor racing circuit and aerodrome in England, basically. It's in Surrey. It opened in 907. It had a banked motor racing circuit and it had an airfield. And 1920s airfield, planes like, are new, right? There's like the barnstormers and yeah, that kind yeah. of it's era. very early days of flight and motor racing and he's right there. Now he rides out there, it's quite a, a way and then there's an entrance fee and he can't afford the entrance fee. Right. And he doesn't want to ask for money and he's not telling his parents he's sneaking off to the racetrack. <laughs> he's just besotted with the motor racing. Yeah. So what he learns is he, he'd ride up there there was this lady he charmed that lived across from the track. She'd let him park his bicycle in her garden and then he'd change into aeronautical overalls from his <laughs> uni degree and then he'd get a bucket of water and then he'd walk past the queue at the main entrance and then go up past the guards and say, mind your back chums and would be carrying the water that would be splashing and they'd all look at him and think he worked there and just let Fantastic. him in. Not only did he just get in dressed as a mechanic, he then would mingle with the mechanics on pit lane. And it's not like today where there's security or anything, to the point where he would start jumping a Janita hand and people would go, Yeah, sure. And he knew engines. So That's he would fantastic. start So he would start building engines and working in pit lane for all these different races who just assumed he was worked for I someone. I love that. He's in the dress circle. Yeah, he's he in the dress to... circle. I love those stories. You know that was at the CIA or someone sent someone to CNN? CIA, I think, during the Iraq War, spent yeah. more time trying to work out what was going on down at CNN than they did <laughs> in, in, Iraq. in Iraq. And they sent someone down to post CNN worker who ended up reading the news <laughs> on CNN. And so I always thought, there's a point when you infiltrate an organization, you should probably stop. Yeah, you know, try it. When, when you become on air talent. <laughs> Well, that's how I got this job. That's right. <laughs> Who do you work for? I gave him to wash the windows once. That's right. So he's hanging around there just helping them all build cars. So he's getting to know the racing cars. He's getting to know the engineers, the drivers. Yeah. They all like him because he's very personable. Apparently everyone likes Duncan. Yeah. He's this hail fellow, well met, 
have a How beer. How can you not watch someone called Duncan? Has <laughs> yeah, there ever been an evil Duncan? I don't think there can be an history? evil Duncan. It's Duncan. It's I'm not allowed a, to have a beer with Duncan. It's the opposite Dunk. of a James Bond villain, you know. It's, it's not sexy, is it? No, it's it, but he's just constantly. You remember my new this. boyfriend? Duncan. <laughs> he sounds like a solid fellow. So he's doing all that. He also, when he's um because at Brooklyn's there's a flying club. So he sees the planes there and yeah. he says, Oh, that's good. So whenever he's got a when things are a bit quiet around the car workshop, which he doesn't work at but does, <laughs> he'd wander over to the aircraft hangars and have a look at that too. And uh, People would say, "Do you want to come up in the plane?" Because oh, this is well before any kind of major regulations, regulations or aviation authorities. Yeah, yeah that's is, right. He's just you want to fire up the you want to fire up the plane. The other guy would be flying it. He wouldn't pretend to yeah. be a pilot. And so then he decides, "Well, I've got to learn to fly." So he learns to fly. And so he's both hanging around with race drivers and pilots, and he's learned to fly, and he's uh, knows how to drive the cars, and he's really into this. this he's driven. This is where he's, he's very going. driven, and it looks like this is what he's going to get into, right? He's doing his mechanics degree and everything. But, of course, then World War II breaks out. Right. And he thought about joining the RAF. He's old enough now. He's old enough, just turning 20. Yeah. He decides to try out for the RAF, but on the runway he crashes the plane before taking off because <laughs> it's a different type of model to his use. That's thing. what you do if you're trying to get out of yeah, exactly. going to the Well, the instructor saying to him now, these aren't like your civilian planes. They're very temperamental and we've got lots of men wanting to be pilots this is at the start of the war, but we don't have many planes. So he said, you know, be very easy. And so, of course, he runs it into a building. <laughs> So he goes, I can't join the RAF, but I want to fly. And he then he hears that you can fly for the Navy because the Navy often have escort planes and a whole bunch of things like that. Sure. And he thinks, well, I can join the Navy and I can both fly, but I can also with my engineering skills, I can work in keeping planes in the air and do all that sort of stuff. So he joins the Navy and he very early in the war, you know, in 39, 40, the British are already in Norway fighting the Nazis. Yes. This is very early on. So he gets appointed to the HMS Glorious, which is already in Norwegian waters. So he goes, you're being shipped out to Norway. So right. he's on the ship going to Norway with a bunch of other soldiers As a pilot. and people. And he's going to be a pilot and, and a mechanic. So right. he's, he's doing a bit of both. So they're in the bar in the, in the ship heading to Norway and he's having an argument, friendly argument over a few drinks with a, a friend. He loved a drink and suddenly... There's this, he says a fearful explosion interrupted us and the lights go out and everyone was thrown on the floor. So they'd been hit by something, a yeah. mine or something. He staggers out of the bar and the chief steward of the ship standing there and grabs him and says, this way, sir, and leads him out, puts him on a waiting lifeboat and he's out in the sea for 12 hours with a bunch of other people. The boat sinks and not everyone makes it off. Unbelievable. While he's sitting there, it's freezing cold. It's his first taste of war. He hasn't even got to the theatre. And he's sitting there going, this is unbelievable. I can't believe that one man can just walk out of the bar into a lifeboat where others have just died on this boat. Yes. Like, how lucky am I? And he says, I'm, I'm young enough to you know, still have that, yes, we're off doing a good deed, but he suddenly started to realise this war doesn't make sense. Yeah, gotcha. This is, there's no logic Not to this. Right? Finally, after 12 hours in the freezing cold waters, they're picked up by another ship. And so he's on that ship and they're all recovering. 
Next moment, there's a tremendous crash, and that ship has been hit by a German coastal battery. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And it kills a bunch of his friends, and it goes down. And he's still not in the theatre of No, this is the yeah. boat that picked him up from the other boat that right. sank. So he's been at war for about five minutes, and he's been in two boats that have sunk. <laughs> two maritime disasters. Two maritime disasters. So they go down. He's back in the water again for a few hours. Finally, another shift picks him up, yes. takes him, he finally gets to Norway. So he's been, so on the way to war, he's in two, yeah. he escapes two sinking ships that, where people die. A baptism of fire. Yeah, yeah. And say. this is the thing about all these races that race after the war. They've all been through the war. It's a bit like Keith Miller, the cricketer, and all yes. this. So to them, this isn't scary. Yeah. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Like is, they're going about their business. They've, they're living life to their fullness. When he's in Norway, though, he goes, I, got, I found myself a bit near to the center of an explosion. That was enough that he was suffers quite heavily casualties, and he's back in hospital recovering for five months from the blast injuries. His legs were in a very bad way; he couldn't okay. walk. Yeah, right. So finally, he comes back, and he's still recovering a bit. So they put him on doing a lot of the engineering work on planes, and he's in the Orkney Islands. This is good for him because he's behind the scenes. He's, he's behind not- the scenes at this stage. Yeah. So the Orkney Islands, a lot of the convoys leave from there, and. The, he gets told that there's a top secret convoy that's being prepared to leave from the Orkney Islands. So there's huge, you know, there's all these flotilla of like aircraft, yeah. carriers, destroyers, battleships, planes, everything. This is the staging post for the, yeah. and it's a the August convoy to Malta. So Malta's being besieged. This is where the Germans sure. are tracking, and a few convoys have to get there to save Malta, basically. From Malta the was Germans. strategically, strategically important, important, wasn't it? Yeah, because yeah. it gives it. If you control yeah. that, you can cover yeah, parts cover of the Mediterranean. So he gets told there's this special convoy. He doesn't know it's Malta at the time. Finds this out later, and a consignment of American fighter aircraft right. have been sent over, <laughs> and they're in packing cases. So they have to unpack them, assemble them, yeah. air test them, so fly them and test that they work. And then they deliver them to the fleet to get sent to Malta for operational duties, right? What could go wrong? They don't have any experience with these aircrafts. So it's all dependent on them doing this and prepping them on written instructions that come with them. It's like an IKEA thing, right? Like in, <laughs> you don't want to build IKEA without the pamphlet. So Where's said, my Allen key? Yeah, I'm so, building a <laughs> – good Lord. So he has the pamphlet with all the technical flying data. This is a top secret document, right? Mm. They hadn't flown any of them yet to air test them. And he's studying it in great detail and they're still assembling bits of it and that. And he's called out to deal with something. And he'd bought a dog that lived with him in his sort of hut there. And he came back and the pamphlet's gone. He thought his co-worker had taken it. So he doesn't think about it for a little while and does some stuff. And he says he's to his um, co-worker, can I have the pamphlet back? And he goes, what pamphlet? So he suddenly thinks, I've lost this top secret. Uh. He goes back and looks around the room and finds his dog's name was Lucky in the box that he slept in. It was covered in pieces of chewed and torn up paper. <laughs> the dog is literally eaten. <laughs> the dog ate my top secret dog. Exactly. It's literally. So he's like, oh, my God. <laughs> there are destroyers, cruisers, four aircraft carriers, dozens of merchant ships all waiting to put to sea and, and rescue dogs. Malta and we can't build the planes because the dogs eat my the pamphlet. Top, top secret document. Yeah. Who, who should have rolled up the remains and smacked him <laughs> on the nose with it. Bad dog. So he's like. <laughs> Bad dog. Uh, so he's literally the captain rings him and says. Um, how are we going? How are you going with the planes? <laughs> 
<laughs> his co-worker goes, we could be caught martial. Oh, we're in so much fun. trouble here. And he's like, oh, my God. So he says to the thing, oh, well, we're just doing the air. He says, I'm, you know, I'm, um, uh, he says, I'm sorry, sir, but we'll have to hold the sailing or the convoy for a day or two, you know. Like, stop the war. Like, stop the war. So they start running around and through a bunch of Americans that they've become friends with, managed to get, get someone to get another copy out to them. And they build them. The captain keeps ringing, saying, so when they'd be ready. Anyway, he placed for time and in four days, while thousands of men and all this are waiting with bottles praised, they're all there. And then he manages to get it and they get it done. And he gets it done and says, we've done it all, Captain. We've pulled up. And the captain goes, I commend you. You've done this much faster than we thought you could. <laughs> what type and of dog was that? What type of dog was it? was like a little terrier. That makes it even funnier. <laughs> yeah, it was a tiny dog. Like a He's tiny dog. tiny dog and delayed a military combat. Could have derailed a war effort. Yeah. Bad dog. Yeah, Malta yeah. could have fallen because a dog had eaten. Like, no. so literally. <laughs> no sleeping inside tonight. So then he, <laughs> so after that he then goes off to Africa and he's in Africa, sees, and there he's flying the naval variant of the Spitfire, which is called the Seafire. Yeah. And sure. he's flying that. He's got all these tales from the war. He has crashes. He has all sorts of stuff, but he's flying. and he's Not got, in combat. He's, he's, sometimes he, he's, he's in, in combat. combat. He gets shot at all that sort of stuff. But one time he has to fly back because he's his, his Dad's dying. Right. He has to figure out ways to get back. And they basically say in the Navy and Army and Air Force, if you're on compassion, he gets compassionate yes. leave, and they say you sort of have to find your way back to London yourself on military transports. Right. But the problem is if you're on compassionate leave, you can get bumped for anyone that is or, or injured or on operational yeah. duty. So if they're moving troops to fight, you can't get on that plane. You're standby. So he's on standby and he says, but he offers and they say, can you, you know, fly this plane, fly this plane? So he says yes to a plane he's never <laughs> flown before. Oh, Jesus. And he manages to fly that to uh, Egypt to get home. And he gets home and he misses his dad by an hour uh, passing away. Terrible. So he has all these adventures across all yep. of this, right? So this is what he's all going. Finally, the war ends for him and he's demobilized in 1946. So yep. he's got through. He has been injured. He's been shot at. He's been Crashing sunk. Planes. He's done everything, right? But... Yeah. He's demobilized and he joins the motor trade as a salesman with a company called Henley's Group. And they're one of the largest and they're selling Jaguar cars and all this. So he loves that. And then he starts to get back into racing. So he starts racing in local events. He'd do hill climbs. He'd do sprints. He'd do all these sort of things. Yes. And he becomes very good. People say, this guy's really good racer. Yeah. Even though he crashes occasionally. Yeah. Great in the wet. They say he's the fastest guy in the rain. It's a great way to tell a really good driver, isn't it? Some people say he's the fastest they ever saw in the rain. Oh. If these are for, and he's racing Formula One races and stuff too, right? He really starts to shine in the endurance races, the long 12-hour, 24-hour races. At this point, he's come through the war. He's racing cars. And he says, you know, we just knew that you, the war teaches you you could die at any moment and you just got to have fun. So sure. this is where he becomes known for his antics off the track. <laughs> he was one stop speeding while rushing to take part in a TV program on road safety. <laughs> oh, that's great. One time he bought a Bugatti. And these were great early we, racing we car. Now a big brand, but at the time, you know, these are these old classic cars. And he's um, going to go to the Brighton Speed Trials. It's his race car. He owns it. 
he's got a couple of cars. He's also got an MG as well, and he's got a lorry. And suddenly it turns out someone couldn't drive the Bugatti for him. So he says, all right, I'll put the MG on the back of the lorry and I'll attach the Bugatti to the back and tow it. And his wife is following in a car they've bought. And uh, it's an old Armstrong Sidley Hurricane for anyone who is interested in cars. And so she's driving behind him and he's driving along and it's going really well. He's driving very slowly because he's towing this Bugatti sure. and got the MG on the back. <laughs> Suddenly he's going down a hill and he looks and sees overtaking him is this, he sees the radiator of, a, of another Bugatti and he says, oh, well, there's another competitor going to Brighton like I am. So he waves him past to overtake him but it doesn't overtake him hung back a bit and he thinks, ah, he's uh, hanging back to admire my Bugatti. Uh, he's comparing it with his own so he kept yes. motoring. And then the Bugatti starts to accelerate and draws level next to him and he looks over and there's no driver. It's his Bugatti. And he suddenly realises, <laughs> oh, that's my Bugatti. <laughs> so he's going down this hill in the outer lane is his Bugatti with no driver and he's in the lorry and he's going, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't good. This hasn't worked out He looks up and they're about to get to the bottom of the hill and it's gathering speed and about to overtake him and he sees it's heading on the road towards two women who are standing with their back to him. Look out. So he has to react and he drives the lorry into the Bugatti and steers it off the road and into a lamppost which then snaps in two electric lamppost and there's sparks going absolutely everywhere it's absolutely smash a huge crash he pulls over there's these high voltage wires now sticking out Mm. and his wife says we have to get in touch with the local power company to tell them about this you can't just leave it and duncan's like i want to get to the track and fix the bugatti (laughs) first things i'll just put a sign up that says danger his wife says you can't (laughs) that's ridiculous you got there then there's a huge argument and there's this guy watching and he's taking notes and Duncan says, oh, yeah, um, do you know where the power company offices are? And the man goes, well, no, I'm the manager of the power company who just happened to be there. And yeah. he says, how much would the power pole cost to fix? And he says, like, some amount. And Duncan just gives, gets the gives money in his wallet, gives him the cash. Where's he get his money from? So is he successful in his business? Father's his father's rich. father's right. Very rich. Another time he's in Italy and they've been out partying all night. He loved a party. Absolutely yeah. adored going out drinking all night. So they're in Italy and summer time around dawn, a party had finished up and he's got to get to Milan Airport to fly home, right? He hasn't slept, he's drunk. And he's with a friend, Mike and Peter. They're meant to be helping him. Peter's an interpreter for them, right? He speaks Italian. And they go up to a guy who's got the bus that takes them to the airport. And this guy, this Italian guy, is for whatever reason they're, they're chained to him, says, I'll sell you the whole bus for 1,750 lira. <laughs> And sort of as a joke, but Duncan goes, all right, I'll buy the bus. He's been drinking all night. And the guy thinks he's joking and he says, no, here you are, here's the money. And Mike and Peter go, it'd be pretty funny if you did buy the bus. So they buy the bus and they write out a thing on an official paper. So they write out on it. A receipt for purchase of the bus. Right. So it's not like you. They paid for it. They pay for it. They had the money. The guy once he he's sort of joking like you could buy the bus, but he's like and they've done it. He's like once he realizes they're going to give him the these drunkard is going to hand him the cash there and then he's like yeah I had the bus. Fine. So they do it. He's got a receipt <laughs> for this bus. So he then gets into the bus and he says I he makes two circuit of the square near the Milan Cathedral and attempted a third. Only discovered the police had set up a roadblock. <laughs> 
So he stopped and an excited policeman jumps up on the step of the bus's sliding door and demands entry. Yes. And he moves the lever and opens the door, you know, those pressurized yeah. doors. <laughs> exactly. And the policeman sticks his hand out holding a revolver. So Duncan immediately shuts the door on his arm and takes the gun off the policeman. Incredible. <laughs> and the pol- So the Italian police are not thrilled with this. No, they're not. Do you know what? Once I went to a musical camp uh, in, one, in a little minibus. That alone is amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't ask who. Mr. Kirkham, I think it was Mr. Kirkham, was driving the bus yeah. and just had the hydraulic doors. Yeah. It was the slowest trip ever up to the camp because every time he thought he was changing gears, all he was actually doing was opening and closing the <laughs> hydraulic doors. <laughs> and did you guys not tell him? Or no. So we drove the whole way like in, in first. first gear. <laughs> as he just kept opening and shutting the hydraulic doors every time he went to change gears. <laughs> anyway. Well, this is the same because he's got it shut. So he's sitting there in the bus and all the uh, police are out the front, but they can't get the door open because it's hydraulically sealed. It's quite, you know, bad. So they're all getting more and more angry. And then a more important policeman arrives, like a senior policeman arrives. And he approaches the bus with Mike and Peter, his friends are on the outside. And Duncan raises his hat in friendly greeting, which the policeman is not impressed by. (laughs) And they're talking out the front. His mates are talking to the policeman. And he can't hear what, understand what's being said. They're saying, pack it up, Duncan. You're gone far enough. For heaven's sake, tell the old gaffer the joke's over, right? <laughs> and he's starting to think, oh, I might have got a bit far here still, yeah. like, you know, with the bus and the policeman and everything. Sure. So the captain says, Signor Hamilton, be good. It's enough. Surrender. It must not go on. And Duncan goes, but it's my bus. I bought it. <laughs> And the guy goes, no, no, it's not your bus. It belongs to the Italian Airlines. Be a good fellow and surrender it. And he just says, but it's my bus and pulls out the receipt and hands it to the policeman. So the policeman starts laughing going, oh, your friends aren't lying. You didn't steal the bus. You actually didn't buy the bus. So he says, well, anyway, your friends have told you the truth, but i got to arrest you. So Duncan says, then I have no choice but to drive away. Tell the crowd to stand back because the whole crowd's developed. The policeman says, don't do it. Don't drive off. And he says, I must. The disgrace of being arrested is more than a gentleman can bear. I'm a man of honour. I must do the honourable thing and revs the engine. I must do the honourable thing. <laughs> and the policeman says, look, I stop it. I know it's a joke. And he says, it's no joke being arrested. I have brought disgrace to my family. I hung my head for a moment and straightened up with a jerk and said, I must do what I must do. And I let the clutch and the bus move forward slightly. The policeman says, if I let you go, will you get out of the bus? And the policeman says, I give you my word. And so Duncan says, the word of an Italian officer is good enough for me. <laughs> so he drives the bus around the corner because yes. the guy goes, don't get out in front of the crowd. They yeah. drive around the corner. They shook hands. <laughs> the policeman gets in, takes him out, keeps his word, doesn't arrest him. But he, the policeman, Peter and Mike and Duncan all then sit down in the local cafe and have a bottle of wine together. That's the way. That's similar. Just smooth it over. Well done, Italy. He then meets a guy who becomes his great friend, another fellow racing driver, right. a guy called Tony Rolt. And we'll get into who Tony is in a second because he's got just as amazing story as Duncan of how he ended yes. up here. But he meets Duncan. They become great friends and they become co-drivers in these big Le Mans races, okay. 24-hour races. 
So they're in the Netherlands and they're taking part in a 40-lap Grand Prix event. This is 9.48. This is when he meets Tony. Tony watches Duncan drive and says the first thing he ever says to him is, the object is to get around quickly, not to kill yourself. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> they immediately become friends and they're often seen at pubs in fine right. party modes. They yeah. love having a drink together. One night they're out together and, and Duncan is so sloshed, he fell from a light post and luckily for him a policeman broke his fall who happened to be walking past. <laughs> Thank you, officer. So they're doing all this sort of stuff. Another time they're having a party, a whole bunch of them, Tony and Duncan invite every all the other race drivers back to their hotel room. They're all bagging each other and fun. One of the drivers pretends to throw the doona out the window of the hotel so that Duncan won't have a doona. So he yeah. leaps to grab it and instead he trips and falls head first through the wall. His head, because it's like really like plasterboard, so his head literally goes through, goes the, wall. through the wall. So he's got his shoulders and body in his room and his head <laughs> in the room next to him. And it's dead dark in there. And all of a sudden, a light switch comes on and you realise his head's wedged in the wall between two single beds containing two very elderly ladies <laughs> who are staying in the hotel next door. So he's like, you know, like a, you know, when they like, you have a, Evening, moose, a moose on the wall, you know, and it's just the head. He looks like that to them. His just heads come through the wall and they can't see. It's just a perfect circle. His head's back in and he looks at the two ladies and they say, Oh, my goodness, one says, what are you doing? And he says, I slipped. <laughs> and the other <laughs> one said, well, go away at once. You're a very rude boy. <laughs> and he says, but I'm stuck. I can't get out, right? <laughs> his mates grab his legs and try and pull him out. But he's stuck. They yeah. can't pull him out, right? So he's lying there and the two ladies say, well, we can't get out of bed because we're not dressed appropriately for you to see it. <laughs> So a stalemate. Then he hears Tony say, don't worry, Duncan, I'll have you out in a jiffy. And then Tony grabs the leg of a chair and just smashes the wall down. This is anarchy. So this is what they're like. Sure. So Tony Rolt, who he's met and become great friends with, is born in 16th of October 1918. He's born in Hampshire, but he grows up in St. Asaph in Wales. So he grows yep. up in Wales. He loves racing as a child and he's the fourth child of a Brigadier General Stuart Rolt and he's educated at Eton. So incredibly rich. He's up the top end. He was already, when he was young, caught driving illegally <laughs> by the police underage, right? Yeah. So his mum buys him a Morgan three-wheeler when he's 16 and lets him compete in schoolboy trials at Eton. It's good parenting. And he then starts racing regularly, right? He wins all these races. He buys this famous car, like individual car. It's an ERA, E-R-A, and it's called Remus, and it's well-known in car cycles. Okay. It was owned by his fellow old Etonians, two Siamese princes that he <laughs> bought it off. They owned it and sold That's it so to I, him. So, so he went secondhand from the Siamese princes. Siamese princes, right? So he's doing all that. One of the first times he's racing at Brooklyn, the same place that Duncan was at, and a bolt dropped from the exhaust and flames began swirling around his lap. And he just calmly removed his glove and stuffed it into the hole and stopped the fire right. and stopped the thing. And everyone was like, wow. And he went on to win the race. He won the 939 British Empire Trophy, aged just 20. And the headline in the paper the next day was, Boy Driver Wins 200-Mile Race. Experts all upset at Donington Park. No one predicted. So no one predicted it. He's a 20-year-old, like, Upstart. wonder kid best driver sure. coming through 
everyone predicts he's going to be the greatest driver of his generation. Of course, then war breaks out. So he enters the Royal Military College at Sandhurst and in 939 receives commission in the Rifle Brigade. In 940, he's sent to France. Now, this is when Dunkirk is happening. This is with the British Expeditionary Force is trapped, have to escape at Dunkirk. Yes. While that's happening, he's in the thick of the fighting in Calais defending and he's trying to stop him and his division, a bunch of people, they're trying to stop the 10th Panzer Division from advancing on Dunkirk. Their whole job is to delay them while they get everyone off the beach. So he's fighting in that. He's doing so well that he wins a military cross because he helps a wounded comrade while firing his Bren gun at the advancing German troops. So he's like a true war hero. But he's captured. Him and his comrades managed to delay the Panzer Division getting to Dunkirk. But he's caught and put into, at the very start, in 1940, for the rest of the war, he's in prison camps. He escapes seven times from German prisoners <laughs> of war Seven camps. times? Good on him. He escaped from Luffen, uh, Byberg, Posen, Warburg, Eckstart. One point for the last escape there, he ends up within 100 metres of the Swiss border before being captured. Oh. What was his MO? How was how Well, there's escape? different ones in all of them. Like some he pretends to be the Red Cross come in and then he leaves He's pretending to on, be Red Cross. Yeah, he does yeah. all sorts of like bold plans. Yes. He then ends up at Colditz Castle, which is where famous they send all the, you know, there's been movies made about this and everything, and they send, it's the maximum security, right? (laughs) So he gets sent there 4th of July 1943 because he's escaped so often. He decides, well, I'm still going to try and escape. So while he's in Colditz, they hear word of the great escape at Starlig Luft 3 has right. happened, okay. which the movie's basically yes. 50 prisoners had been executed for trying to escape. So yeah. there were real stakes of trying to escape. And this Harsh. is a guy that's tried to escape seven times. <laughs> seven times. So while he's in Colditz, he has an idea, which is quite well known now, to build a glider to try and escape. And this is quite a favorite, the Birdman, a this famous is, movie. This, this is him. This is the glider. Wow. So this is quite famous. They build a glider to try yeah. and fly out, fly out of, Colditz. of Colditz. So what happens is... This he, is the guy. This is the guy. He has the idea. He thinks... So what he knows, one day he's in the yard and he notices that the castles and things like that, sure. right? So it's not a made-for prison. He notices that the chapel roof line is completely obscured from the German guard's view. They can't see it. Yeah. And he realises that that roof would make a perfect launching point from which a glider could fly across the river, which was 60 metres below, right? So he says to his fellow prisoners, and they still obey rank and hierarchy and stuff, so he goes and basically there's an escape committee in the prison (laughs) of the British, and he says, I reckon we could do this. So two guys, Bill Goldfinch and Jack Best, they say, I reckon we could do this too. So they all set about trying to build this glider. They're helped because they find in the prison library a book called Aircraft Design, a two-volume work <laughs> by C.H. Latimer Needham, which explained the necessary physics and engineering and included a detailed diagram of a wing section. Okay, there's it- an oversight from whoever's designed the jail. So you yeah. don't have reading material <laughs> to build a providing plan. information that may help you escape from said I mean, it's, institution. It's like having a tunnel, like how to build a tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
these had been castles that the Germans have conquered this area sure, yeah. and they've grabbed the castle as a prison. So the library probably was some aristocrat's library before the war, right? Yeah. But they find this. They then start to assemble it in the lower attic. They build a fake wall so the Germans don't know the attic's there. <laughs> they build a 60-foot long runway from tables, right? Incredible. The glider is going to be launched by a pulley system based on a falling metal bathtub full of concrete. That's the gravity assist that's going to shoot them up. They build all of that. It's going to accelerate the glider to 50 kilometres an hour. (laughs) They build this false wall and in there they're building away. They have to steal pieces of wood. So the Germans are so accustomed for looking for tunnels, they don't think to look up. Correct. So this is how they can sort of do it. So they create an electric alarm system to warn the builders of approaching guards. Mm. Like they're doing, they're really clever. This is incredible. Ingenuity. They have to build these sort of 30 ribs to form the body of the glider. So they get that from bed slats and every other piece of wood that any prisoner wore. So all the prisoners in there are looking for wood. And then they build the wing spars from floorboards. They get control wires. They just rip out electrical wiring and unused portions of the castle. (laughs) It's a lightweight two-seater high-wing monoplane design. There's a picture which I was going to say out. how many get out. So two people, two people, two people get out. Yeah, and I'll get to why they've done it like that. The wingspan is nine point seven five meters, and it is six meters long. Prison sleeping bags. They use them to skin the glider. Yep. So they they build that, put that around there, and they use German ration millet. They boil it and use that as a form of sort of a seal to seal it all in. So there's a photo of it. It looks like a full glider, right? The takeoff scheduled for spring of 1945. They know there's the next air raid blackout. The They're going to launch off the it, right? Launch pad. The main reason they build this is they are very worried as the Americans and Russians. They know the Americans and Russians are approaching. Yes. They're very worried that what's going to happen is the Americans are going to almost be there. They're going to slaughter everyone. The Germans are going to start killing yeah. the prisoners. So the aim then is two men will fly out get to the advancing army and warn them and say, you've got to come you quick. Yes. It turns out that they don't need to use the glider because it's actually pretty much finished and then the American army show up and liberate them. The Germans just leave without any mm-hmm. firing shot. So it never really flew, but it was made into a 970. Surely you'd TV just do film. it anyway, wouldn't you? Well, what happens is the fate of the glider is not known because the Russians eventually get that area and they – don't cooperate with giving it back. So no one knows what's happened to the glider to this day. Part of them will still to this day regret having spent all that energy and time and ingenuity and risk. And exactly. They didn't get to fly yeah, it. just want to see that. Just want to go. see it go. Goldfinch kept all the drawings he did to plan for this. Mm-hmm. Off that, they built a one-third scale model and in 993 they launched it off the castle roof and it flew. So interesting, like, <laughs> and a set of plans of the glider in the uh, Imperial War Museum. Good. So that was Tony Rolt's, like, part in the war. So he comes home a decorated war hero, yes. fought at Calais, awarded Military Cross, and he's the guy that desi- came up with the idea for the glider in Colditz, <laughs> tries to escape seven times. So you can imagine between Tony and Duncan, yeah. they've seen it all. Here we go. Right, they're not even that old. They're in their, like, late 20s and they've seen everything. Yeah. So post-war, Tony finally retires from the army in 1948 because his parents say, you need to make a choice between the army or racing because he was a career army guy. Yeah. Even He'd been to Sanders and everything. They point out that motor racing could not be made to pay so he should get into staying in the army. Yes. 
He says, of course, I was absolutely determined to prove otherwise. So he just leaves yeah. and goes and starts racing. So he starts racing in everything. People say he doesn't quite make it in Grand Prix. He races in a few. He races in the Silverstone 1950, which is the first ever F1 World Championship yep. race. And he did a few others. But by this point, they think he was probably a bit older. Sterling Moss says Rolt could have been the, one of the top GP drivers of all time. Part of the reason he doesn't race as much as he should is he's formed a company called Rolt Dixon Research, which becomes one of the great engineering companies of all time. So he's sure. busy doing that. But at this point, and we might leave here and come back, they begin, Duncan and Tony decide, why don't we go and race Le Mans together? And they begin their career racing Le Mans, to which leads to one of the craziest victories ever in motorsport. Is this where we're ending? No. When we come back next week. No. We're going to get into their Le Mans career, which involves one of the funniest races I think I've ever heard. You've set the scene, two larger-than-life characters combine, go to the show, the scene is set. And when we're back, it will be Le Mans. Here we go. And they're going to have some fun. Thank you, Titus O'Reilly. You've done it again. Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to another episode of Sports Bazaar. As you know, I've been shamelessly plugging our membership program, Bazaar Plus. And one of the key bits that people are loving is you get an extra episode every week. Here's a short outtake from our bonus episode. Should I tell you something I did on a TV show? Ill-fated yeah. TV show. We had about eight episodes and there was a fun run like a marathon in Melbourne. Yeah. They it would take it very seriously. And so for my show, I went and set up a table full of drinks at about the 34-kilometre mark. And then had a guy in spectacles I stole knocking over, spilling all the drinks just as the first runners came by. <laughs> so all of a sudden the, the card table goes over, the drinks are everywhere, covered in water. And there's eight guys <laughs> just running up you. and down on the spot with their lungs coming out of their ears going, what the hell? <laughs> You've never seen more disappointed. That is and cruel women. and unusual punishment. Yeah, that's no surprise <laughs> to the show folded a couple of weeks after that. <laughs> that's a short clip from our bonus episode each week for members who join our Bazaar Plus program. If you're interested in signing up to that and hearing more of it, simply go to the link in the show notes or go to bazaarplus.com.